The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm your co-host today, I mean your guest host today, Linda House. I'm the Executive Vice President of External Affairs here at the Cancer Support Community, and I am filling in for your regular host, Kim Tebaldo, the President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, who will be joining you again next week. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club have become united, and we are now the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at over 170 locations worldwide, also online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org and by a telephone helpline, and that number is 888-793-9355. Being empowered is choosing to adopt actions, behaviors, and attitudes that can help you regain a sense of control over your treatment and life with cancer. This is a quote directly from, frankly speaking about cancer, lung cancer. Part of being empowered when you're faced with a diagnosis is learning all you can about your specific type of cancer, what it is, how it affects your body, how it's treated, and what you can expect during diagnosis, treatment, and beyond. Today, we're going to learn how to be empowered empowered to face a lung cancer diagnosis. According to the American Lung Association, there are approximately 224,000 new cases of lung cancer, and that, that's just the expectation for this year alone. And this represents about 13% of all cancer diagnosis, and lung cancer is also the most common cancer worldwide. Today's show is brought to you by Barringer Ingelheim. We're going to take a closer look at lung cancer. We've had a couple shows on lung cancer this year, but we really feel like there's so much valuable information. We'd like to to take this time and really dig deep into lung cancer, from what it is to how it's diagnosed to treatment to how to find support. And specifically, let's get into some of the, uh, the, the newer discussion around lung cancer. How do we make sure that it's accurately diagnosed? So joining us today to talk about lung cancer is a longtime friend of mine and just a brilliant cancer advocate, Maureen Rigney, the Director of Community and Support Services for the Lung Cancer Alliance, where Maureen oversees support and outreach services. Maureen, I know that you are a licensed clinical social worker and you have been with the Lung Cancer Alliance since 2005. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Linda. I'm, I'm really pleased to be here. So let's just start at the beginning, and for um, our listeners who may have missed one of our earlier lung cancer shows, just tell us what is lung cancer. Well, sure. Uh, Well, first we'll start with cancer, which um, develops as cells grow out of control and form growth or tumors. 
And without treatment, uh, cancer just continues to spread. That's also called metastasis uh, from where it started to other parts of the body. And so lung cancer is just cancer that starts in the lungs. And things like tobacco smoke, asbestos fibers, air pollution, and those kinds of things can damage the cells of the lung, and then cancer can develop. And so there is a difference between a primary diagnosis of lung cancer and a metastatic lung cancer. And can you just spend some time really helping uh, our listeners understand the difference between the two of those and how it would really impact them, why it's so important to make that differentiation? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Linda, because it can be hard for folks to understand. There is definitely a uh, difference. And so lung cancer starts in the lungs and can spread to, say, the liver or the brain, Um, but it's still lung cancer. And it's the same as when a breast or another cancer spreads to the lungs. And it's really important to know where in the body the cancer started because the different kinds of cancer can be treated in very different ways. And I think it's important for us to, to, to say that typically if you have a metastatic cancer to the lung, then the disease is treated like the primary source. So if it's exactly. a breast cancer that metastasizes to the lung, your doctors are really going to want to treat that um, as a breast cancer, not necessarily a lung cancer. Absolutely. Yep. So walk us through, we hear terms, um, non-small cell, small cell. Explain the difference between the, the, the two of those. Sure. Um, the difference has to do with a few things. It has to do with how the, the cell becomes cancer. Um, the different types also look different under the microscope, and, and they act differently. So something like small cell lung cancer spreads more quickly than other types of, of lung cancer. And, of course, the different types of lung cancer also respond um, to different types of treatment. So it's important to know what kind of lung cancer you have so that then you'll understand why the treatment that you're getting is is recommended. Um, Non-small cell is more common than than small cell, and there are different subtypes. Uh, Adenocarcinoma, squamous cell, and large cell are the three most often diagnosed types of non-small cell lung cancer. And... um you know, when people think about, you know, do I have a non-small cell or small cell, those are treated differently, I'm assuming. Absolutely. Okay. And so it's, it's important to really have that conversation with your healthcare professional ahead of time? Yes. Prior to your treatment. And does that, does that impact um, clinical trials? So if somebody would be interested in participating in a clinical trial, would they need to know their type of lung cancer? Absolutely, um, as well as the stage, which just means how far the cancer has spread from from the place that it started. Um, so yes, but it's extremely important to understand the type of lung cancer and the stage, um, because either for you know a traditional treatment or a clinical trial, those those are the most important things. Um, other uh, treatment um, options are. Determined by you know a person's overall health and um, their their goals for treatment and other things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if I'm a if I'm a patient and I hear the words you have lung cancer, um, it's important not to stop there. And I always I always say please don't go search the internet at that stage um, because you really need to have a lot more information about your cancer to really start to put that picture together. And that's something that may be formed over a period of a few weeks, a month. What is that time frame? Absolutely, um, and that's great advice to, to not look on the Internet, uh, certainly right away, and some people choose not to at all. Um, 
Yes, because it's it, it. You can be diagnosed with lung cancer, and you still need tests. A lot of other tests, which I think you know we can talk about later. But a lot of other tests to really determine what the stage is, and it's really important for the treatment team to have the full picture. And so sometimes it can feel to folks like it's taking forever to get diagnosed with all of these tests, and they're anxious and they want to get into treatment. But it's really important to have uh, for the doctor to know everything they can about the cancer before they start the treatment. Okay. So so tell me about what is new. I don't know I don't think that mutations are new, but our learning about mutations are new. So we're hearing a lot about about mutations in lung cancer and diagnostic tests, you know, specific to those mutations and treatments that are specific to those mutations. So can you kind of walk through A, what are mutations and um, how do those play a role in your lung cancer diagnosis and treatment? Sure. Um, so it, it gets a little complicated, but it's important to start kind of with basic biology so when we talk about mutations and alterations and those kinds of things. And so it's important to remember that the cells in our body have several parts. Um, there's the nucleus or the nerve center, and that contar- contains the pairs of cr- uh, chromosomes, and they carry genetic material like DNA and RNA. And then within the DNA are genes, and, and those genes contain the information that we inherited from each of our parents. Over time, those genes can change, and so they can mutate, they can alter, they can fuse. They, they call um, these, these things, they can be many different ways that the, the cells change, but um, these mutations can happen over many generations, or they can happen in a single lifetime in response to things that maybe we eat or drink or, or are exposed to. Um, and some of those gene changes are helpful. Some may, don't make one difference or make any difference one way or the other, uh, but other changes in the in the genes can lead to the development, growth, and then the spread of cancer. And we're learning so much more about the different types of changes that cause lung cancer to grow and spread. And the two types that people may be most familiar with because we have drug therapies to treat them um, are the epidermal growth factor receptor, EGFR mutation, and anaplastic lymphoma kinase, or the ELK gene fusion. Um, but research have dis- researchers have discovered many other types of changes in lung cancer, and that affects how the, it grows and responds to treatment and are working to address them as well. So then in companion to identifying these, um, these types of mutations and fusions that cause the cancer to grow, then therapies are treated to really shut down these processes and so, the, you know, to, to try to stop the cancer from growing any further. And so um, at, at, at what point in the process would a patient know if they have a mutation um, or not? The recommendation um, right now um, is that people who are diagnosed with adenocarcinoma, when they have a biopsy, their cancer should be tested. Um, other types of uh, cancer are also tested within the, you know, within specific clinical trials to identify uh, any kind of gene uh, mutations or alterations. Um, however, uh, we know that over time cancer can change, and so there are definitely people who may have been on uh, therapies for a while, especially with advanced cancer, um, and maybe re-biopsy to find out if either the um, those mutations exist if they weren't tested for in the beginning, or if the, the cancer has changed and mutated during the course of treatment, because that can happen as well. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Um, I just want to summarize before we go to a, a commercial break what we've talked about just in this, um, this particular segment. Um, we've raised the issue around lung cancer. 
We've talked about the difference between a primary and a secondary or a metastatic lung cancer. We have talked about the important difference between knowing whether you have a small cell or a non-small cell type of lung cancer. And then you have really done a nice job of explaining the different mutations um, that exist in types of lung cancer. So I know in the next section or the next segment, I'm sorry, we're going to talk a little bit more about about how lung cancer is diagnosed and what tests are available for them. So um, I want to make sure that our listeners stay tuned after this commercial break when we will get into this in even more detail. So this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we'll be right back with more after this break. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am your guest host today, Linda House, and we are so lucky to have with us Maureen Rigney, who is the Director of Community and Support Services for the Lung Cancer Alliance. And in our first segment, we talked about lung cancer, what it is, the different types, you know, molecular uh, information that you should know. And I really, Maureen, would like to step back now that we know what we should know, let's talk about how do we secure that information. And I know that uh, one of the, the big things that Lung Cancer Alliance um, has really been able to bring to 
uh, patients with lung cancer and, and patients pre-lung cancer is screening. And, you know, screening for lung cancer is very important um, as early detection is really uh, a, a key to survival in this type of cancer. So could you just tell us what is screening and what is the current status of uh, screening? Sure. Um, the topic of screening is really an exciting one because it's through screening for lung cancer that we can save thousands of lives, probably ten, tens of thousands of lives. Uh, so in 2010, the results of something called the National Lung Screening Trial, or the NLST, were released by the National Cancer Institute. And that study compared the use of low-dose viral CT scans, computed tomography scans against chest x-rays to see which would be better at finding lung cancer early. And the study included people who were either current smokers or those who had quit but had a history of heavy smoking. And so that study showed that the death rate for those screened with the CT scans was 20% better than those who had the x-ray. And so what that means is that CT screening for lung cancer in this specific way saved lives. And now, since those results were published, major medical organizations have recommended that those at high risk be screened for lung cancer. Um, More insurance companies are covering those screenings. And next year, in 2015, um, we're thrilled that Medicare will also cover CT screening for those at high risk. Um, And the CT scans, these low-dose viral CT scans, are really the only screening for lung cancer that's been found to lower the chance of dying from the disease. Um, But there is really a lot of exciting research into other types of screening, um, including blood tests and sputum tests. Um, So we are, you know, hoping in the future the, you know, the chest x-ray will be more of a follow-up, or sorry, the chest CT scan will be more of a follow-up test um, after we've identified people who may be at risk through blood or sputum tests. Mm -hmm. And so can you say a little bit more about the blood and the sputum tests? And are those available now or are they under clinical trial? Um, they're under clinical trial. There, there are some tests that can confirm the presence of cancer, but what we're really looking at, and, and again, it's, it, it is very promising, are tests that can identify with pretty good specificity if, um, if a person has a high indication of, of a possible lung cancer and then should be screened after that. And um, my understanding is that some of those tests may actually be approved um, within the next year. A, a when you talk about a blood test, a blood test is a typical blood test like you and I are used to having when we have our annual physical. Exactly. Right. Okay. Great. And then, so from a sputum a sputum perspective, you know, just to kind of clarify that for our listeners, this is where um, if someone is uh, having a productive cough, they could actually cough into a, a, a container, and they can test the the, the elements of of that you know, that sputum and see if there are any cancer cells in there. And so that's a really uh, interesting, non-invasive way to make a diagnosis as well. Absolutely. Or at least yeah. start that process for sure. Yeah, sure, sure. And it's, it, I mean, it's great really because it's, uh, it, you know, so many times it's hard to get that diagnosis if you have to do a biopsy or something. Um, and so this mm-hmm. is a much lower risk, much lower risk for, for the patients. Um, sure so. So, so can we talk into uh, a, a little bit more about lung cancer diagnosis? So, you know, let's say you have your screening and there is, um, or you, you know, whether it's a sputum test or a blood test or your, your x-ray or your spiral CT and there's something suspicious um, on the results. So what would be next for, for the patient? What other ways um, are cancers diagnosed? Well, 
Um, as far as when a, a nodule, let's say a nodule is found, it really depends on what it looks like. The next steps would be dependent on what it looks like. Some, um, the fact is that most of us over the age of 50 have nodules in our lungs from various exposures and, you know, the pneumonia, bronchitis in the past, those kinds of things. So having a nodule isn't unusual, but they can tell a lot, even just from the CT scan, about um, the the nodule by the, the edges and what it's made up of, what it's composed of, and the size. And so the next steps are determined really by what it looks like and how big it is. So for a very small nodule, a person may come back in, in a year. Um, for something that looks a little bit more suspicious, if it's... Um, you know, the, the composition isn't right or that some of the edges look iffy, they might have the person come back within a few months. And so the real, the real issue is really trying to determine with nodules which are just going to, you know, stay and not, not change and grow or which are going to change and grow and become cancer. So that's why that follow-up is so important when, when something's found on a CT scan. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and who, who typically orders these tests? Are they the general practitioner? Um, are patients automatically referred to a medical oncologist? No, because um, they will not have been diagnosed with cancer. So the, um, typically what happens is the general practitioner will order the test and the results will be sent back to, to the general practitioner and you know, the, oftentimes the, the screening center will follow up with the patient. But So it's, it can be either the general practitioner's resp- responsibility, but usually the screening centers also help to remind people to come back as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and some cancer centers actually have nodule management programs where if something's found, a person actually goes into a, a specific um, system that is uh, solely designed to follow follow them along this process to make sure that they are watching that nodule and can tell if something suspicious happens to it. Okay. And so, uh, you know, we hear a lot about patient navigators in hospital systems. And, um, and I'm just trying to think about as, we, as we're really in this show in particular trying to encourage patients how to become empowered participants in their care. So the general practitioner, you know, may be ordering these tests and having these conversations with patients, is this a time when a lung cancer navigator might be of help? And, you know, what are those and how, how would patients request access to one of those? Sure. Um, well, it's interesting. A patient navigator is is someone, it, it can be a social worker, sometimes it's a nurse, sometimes it's another healthcare professional, sometimes it's a, it's a layperson. Uh, we certainly know people with lung cancer who have gone through training and, and are navigators themselves. Um, and they're really there to help the patient um, through the, the, the course of the, the journey with, the, with cancer. So they start out and help them understand um, the cancer, help them access the resources. Oftentimes they will help them coordinate their appointments. So they really are valuable. Um, and the interesting thing is that what we're finding as more and more screening centers open at cancer centers that Sometimes it's the, the lung cancer navigator who is um, managing that center that is an integral part of it and so then can follow that patient through the process. Um, for people who, um, the, again, the, the issue with having a nodule is that you haven't been diagnosed with cancer yet. So you can't really access cancer services because you, you may not have cancer and you may never um, develop cancer. But certainly many of the screening programs have navigators themselves to help people through that part of the process. 
Okay. Um, so it's just getting in touch with your, your hospital system or your, or your physician's office or community-based center, <clears throat> like yeah. the Cancer Support Community or you know, some of the other community centers to see if there are navigators available for them. Absolutely. It sure seems like this would because be a perfect time to have somebody to help you walk through all of these yeah. things. Yep, Absolutely. Yep. Uh, before we go to our next break, you know, we started talking a little bit about genetic mutations, but um, talk to us about personalized medicine. When I think about genetic mutations, I think about personalized medicine. So talk, what, is, what is personalized medicine? Sure. Uh, increasingly, um, we're, we are talking about um, medicine becoming more personalized, and that has to do with really understanding these genetic mutations and changes that, that we've been talking about, and then adapting the person's treatment accordingly. Um, Cancer treatments are, uh, cancer treatment is becoming imp- increasingly personalized. And that really means that the treatment for the person is guided by understanding those gene changes, the alterations and mutations and the like that we've been talking about. And it's through understanding those changes in the cells um, that, are make, that are making the cancer grow and spread that the more personalized treatments can be given. So in, for instance, the EGFR uh, mutation, there's a, a drug t- called Parceva that may be prescribed for that that's designed specifically to target that mutation and shut down the way that that is making the uh, cancer grow and spread. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. And when we come back, we are going to cover uh, a lot more on this particular topic, in, in particular, some of the treatments for, uh, for lung cancer. So please stay tuned right after this break. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're talking about lung cancer with Maureen Rigney from the Lung Cancer Alliance. This episode is sponsored by Beringer Ingelheim, and we'll be right back after this break. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the AZI Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. 
For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am your guest host today, Linda House, and I am joined by Maureen Rigney, who is the Director of Community and Support Services for the Lung Cancer Alliance. And welcome back to the show. We've had such a great conversation about lung cancer, what it is, how it's screened. Uh, we want to move on to treatment. But before we get to treatment, Maureen, I'm just wondering if you could spend a little bit of time uh, just explaining a little bit more about screening. So who should be screened? When should they be screened or how frequently? And where would someone go to inquire about screening? Sure. Um, I think the important thing to remember is that screening is done, screening for any disease is done in people who don't have uh, symptoms of the disease. So, for instance, if someone has symptoms of lung cancer, they really shouldn't be screened but should talk with their doctor to see if they need diagnostic tests. Uh, the guidelines for screening vary a bit, but overall, um, people who are between the ages of 55 and 80 who either currently smoke or quit less than 15 years ago and had um, a, what they call a 30-pack-year history of smoking are eligible to be screened. And a 30-pack-year history simply means that you smoked a pack of cigarettes a day for 30 years or two packs a day for 15 years or three packs a day for 10 years or the equivalent. Mm-hmm. Um, and recommendations vary on how often um, a person will need to be screened. Um, as I said before, if a small nodule is found, the person may be asked to come back in less than a year to check on it. Um, some people will be screened yearly for a time, and, and that will be it. Um, others may be screened yearly for the rest of their lives. It really depends on um, you know, the, them and their risk factors and, and their treatment team's decision. Um, it's very important to go to a screening center um, where the uh, radiologists have a good understanding of reading uh, lung cancer low-dose CT screen scans. Um, right now, um, 
uh, we have uh, our screening centers of excellence. So Lung Cancer Alliance is an excellent resource to find a place that does quality screening in your area. We list those on our website, and we can also talk with folks about them on our helpline, which is 800-298-2436. Well, and, and I've seen a number of advertisements for lung cancer screening. So are those... Uh, should our listeners, you know, do a little extra due diligence when they see those advertisements and, you know, reach out to see if they're listed on your website or should they feel confident in, in moving forward? Absolutely. Um, due diligence is definitely needed. Uh, there are a lot of really great quality screening centers that are actually screening for free and for very low cost. However, mm-hmm. um, there are also, you know, centers where you can go and get your whole body scanned and they may not be focusing on the chest and not have the, the right equipment and, and readers for those scans. So it is very important to look for centers who um, also understand um, who explain and will sit down and talk with the person being screened about the risks and benefits associated with screening so that you want, the person understands that. They have competent radiologists. And we also encourage um, the, the screening centers that, that we um, recognize to have smoking cessation programs. We know that um, there are still a lot of people smoking out there, and it can be very difficult to quit. And so having that um, available, uh, we know from the research that being screened for lung cancer is kind of a, te- is a teachable moment. And so people, uh, some people find it easier to quit as they're being screened. Okay, great. Thank you for that clarification. And let's move on to treating lung cancer. Um, So can you start by explaining the difference in treatments? And, you know, sometimes we hear the term local treatment. Sometimes we hear the term systemic treatment. What does that really mean to, to patients? Sure. Uh, local treatments are used when uh, the lung cancer is small and more contained, and that would include uh, surgery, radiation, including um, some really targeted types of radiation. And sy- systemic treatments go throughout the body. So the one uh, systemic treatment that most people are familiar with is chemotherapy, and that's usually a liquid given through a vein with a goal of killing the cancer cells in the body, which are very fast-growing. Targeted therapies that are used to specifically target those gene therapies we've talked about are also systemic, and in lung cancer, most of those uh, come in pill form. Okay, great. Thank you. And and so talk about the the other types of treatment then for lung cancer. Sure. Um, well, surgery is the preferred treatment for smaller and contained lung cancers. And the surgery to remove lung cancer can really range from removing a small wedge of the lung to uh, taking out an entire lung. And there have really been some great advances in lung cancer surgery in the way of minimally invasive surgeries over the last few years. And those um, less invasive ways are techniques that usually require shorter hospital stays, uh, typically have fewer complications and shorter recovery times. And they also leave much uh, smaller scars, which uh, patients really appreciate. Um, Chemotherapy is still a mainstay of lung cancer uh, treatment when when the cancer is spread or metastasized. Uh, As I mentioned, uh, the goal of chemo is to kill the fast-growing cancer cells. Um, The schedule for that depends on the type of lung cancer and the drugs used, but typically typically a, a person goes in for that treatment once every three weeks. And while some advances have been made in chemotherapy to treat lung cancer, many advances have been made in the management of side effects from that chemotherapy. 
Um, another option for some folks um, are those targeted therapies that we were talking about. Um, those are generally given to people whose cancer has those specific mutations or changes we've been talking about. And there are an increasing number of targeted therapies being used to treat specifically non-small cell lung cancer, and many more are being studied. Um, some types of targeted therapies in lung cancer are in pill form. Others are given through a vein and may be given with or without chemotherapy. And they, one of the problems with uh, targeted therapies is that they always stop working. That may be much you know, sooner for some folks, much longer for others. Some people are on targeted therapies for many years. Um, but the good news is that researchers are actively working on drugs to overcome that resistance, as they call it, to, to those initial therapies. Um, radiation is another treatment, um, and that uses high-energy x-rays to shrink the tumors and decrease symptoms. Uh, there are a lot of different types of radiation, and, and the type of person gets will depend on many factors, but an exciting advancement in radiation is called uh, stereotactic body radiotherapy, or SBRT, and that's a very precise form of radiation, and it's used to target the, the tumor, and it spares uh, nearby healthy tissues, and it, it's used to treat smaller and contained lung cancer. And finally... Um, not not approved yet, but showing a lot of prom, uh, pro, promise is immunotherapy. Um, and it's a really exciting approach to, to treating lung cancer. And so as we know, the body's immune system fights off infection and other foreign invaders that can make us sick. Um, and the immune system doesn't work against cancer for, for many reasons. It may not see the cancer as a foreign invader. It may not be strong enough to protect the body from the cancer. Or right, the cancer can actually fool the immune system so it can't work against it properly. And so some very promising research is underway to understand how the immune system is affected by the cancer and then how it can be activated to fight against it. Mm-hmm. Great. So, so let's talk a little bit about um, a, a couple things that you mentioned I just wanted to, to dig a little bit deeper into. So sure. side effect management, and all of these, all of the treatments have some level of side effects. And, uh, you know, I, I like to point out to patients that, um, that this isn't the type of treatment that a relative may have gone through 20 or 30 years ago, that we right. do have tools that will help manage um, both the physical and the emotional side effects that would occur with the treatment of, of lung cancer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, of course, side effects differ according to the kind of treatment given, and that, and that can range from, you know, pain after surgery to hair loss from chemotherapy to rash from targeted therapies. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the most universal side effect that I hear about um, from all of those types of therapy is really fatigue. Um, and the two most important things to remember um, about side effects is, one, that everybody's different and um, everybody will respond to a, a therapy in their individual way. Um, we've known people who've had a really hard time with chemotherapy, also folks who have worked all the way through their treatment uh, of chemotherapy. So it's, unfortunately, it's hard to know how any individual is going to respond until, until they get into treatment. Um, and the second thing to remember is that they really need to talk with their treatment team and be open about any side effects they experience. And as you said, the ability to manage side effects has improved so much over the last um, few years. Uh, people don't have to suffer from them. Uh, but, of course, the treatment team can't really help unless they know there's a problem. So it's really important to be open. Um, sometimes folks feel they're worried about um, telling their treatment team about their side effects because they think it might be mean that they have to go off their, their treatment. And that's 
definitely not always the case. So um, it's important to be open and, and, you know, get some kind of help with the side effects um, in order to cope. Mm -hmm. Great. And so let's talk a little bit about clinical trials. When should uh, a patient think about going on to a clinical trial as a part of their treatment plan? Sure. Um, I think the the number one myth about uh, clinical trials, uh, or one of the the main myths about clinical trials, is that they are a last resort, and so you only you know consider them uh, after you've tried everything else, and and that's absolutely not true. We always recommend that people um, explore clinical trials at any time they have to make a treatment decision, including um, right after they're diagnosed before they even start uh, treatment. And it can be really helpful. People can be interested in clinical trials. Their doctors don't always bring them up, and, and they wonder how to go about talking with the with the doctor about them. And it can be really helpful for them to know about their options before they uh, discuss the topic with their doctor. And then they together can decide on the best course. And I know that Cancer Support Community and Lung Cancer Alliance both work with a company called Emerging Med to help people find appropriate trials. Um, and it's really easy for them to talk with a, a lung cancer clinical trial navigator uh, on a toll-free line. It's 800 698 or obviously they can call the Cancer Support Community um, Support Helpline or the Lung Cancer Alliance Helpline for more direction, and we can help them understand their clinical trial uh, options and what it really means to um, to join a clinical trial. And obviously we also both have um, uh, written information on clinical trials that we can offer. Great. Thank you for that. And we have to take a quick commercial break. This episode of Frankly Speaking About Cancer is sponsored by Beringer Ingelheim. My name is Linda House, joined by Maureen Rigney from the Lung Cancer Alliance. And please join us right after this break. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. 
I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. This is Linda House. I'm your guest host today, filling in for Kim Tebaldo, who is the president and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. And today we've been talking about lung cancer from what it is to diagnosis and treatment with Maureen Rigney, who is the director of community and support services for the Lung Cancer Alliance. And welcome back to our last segment, Maureen. Thank you so much for um, the information that you've provided us. It's been really helpful. I'm wondering if we could start this particular segment by talking about the healthcare team and and if you're a person with lung cancer, who should you bring in around you as um, we, we have a listener who likes to say patient-led care versus patient-centered care? Who, who's who's mm-hmm. to provide that patient-led care? Well, um, it is important that the, the team be what's called multidisciplinary, and that means that medical professionals of all different types are involved, and that for lung cancer, that might include a, a lung surgeon, oncologist, one or more types of radiologists, uh, pulmonologist, nurse, uh, social worker, um, and that the nurse navigator, the nurse, the social worker, those are really important um, uh, people to have as part of your treatment team. Um, they really know the resources in the in the area. They can provide support themselves and can really help folks find, um, understand the, the disease itself and then uh, the, find the support that they need. Great. Thank you. Um, and so what advice would you have for caregivers? So if you have um, a caregiver of someone with lung cancer, what, what special considerations come to mind? Yeah. Well, caregivers are so important and you know, it's it's that term has a wide range of meanings. It can mean somebody who's right there caring for the person to someone who's uh caring long distance. Um so they're not near but they're providing invaluable support and information. Um we get calls from caregivers who want to know the best way to support their loved one with lung cancer and unfortunately that's not anything that we can really tell them because so much depends on the relationship with the person and what they need. And I think one thing caregivers think is that they're supposed to know exactly what to do in every situation, and that's just pretty unlikely because for most people, this is something they've never encountered before, the, the going through a lung cancer diagnosis. And so I always encourage caregivers to talk with the person with lung cancer about what they can do and even what they shouldn't do. And that's an important conversation that many people don't think to have. Um, and for a lot of people, trying to keep things as normal as possible is important. Uh, I talked with a woman last week who 
asked if it was okay that she was making her husband laugh and, and that they were, if they, you know, said that they were dancing over the weekend and she thought that might have been kind of silly, but that's what they always did. And I, of course, told her to laugh and to dance and to do as much as possible to not let the diagnosis of lung cancer take over their life. Um, but of course, the, the most important thing and the very most important thing that caregivers need to do is to really take care of themselves. And too often that, you know, feels selfish to them or they don't, there, there isn't really, they don't feel like there's time for it. But it really is the most important thing they can do um, for themselves and the person with lung cancer. And we know that caregivers are incredibly strong people, but they need to keep up that strength. And so um, it's important to think about what is important to them or what will help them rejuvenate. Sometimes it's a yoga class. Sometimes it's just taking a bath. Um, so we recommend whatever respite they can get away from the situation and, and regain their strength so that they can um, continue to caregiving and uh, caregive in the way that they would like. It's only going to make things better. So Maureen, uh, talk a little bit about resources that are available for the caregiver and also for the person with lung cancer when they are trying to just get information when they're in that phase of you have cancer, where do they go for information and coping with side effects and costs and all of the elements that come into the cancer journey? Sure. Well, um, I honestly don't think you can talk about lung cancer resources without talking about cancer support communities, frankly speaking, about lung cancer um, uh, booklet. Um, it's amazing that's in its seventh edition, and, and we're so grateful to have partnered with you on it from the beginning. And both of our organizations offer um, a great deal of help to both uh, people with cancer and their caregivers. We each have toll-free helplines to help answer questions or provide guidance, help them understand lung cancer and its treatment options. Um, cancer Support Community offers telephone counseling, which is a wonderful help. Uh, lung Cancer Alliance keeps a list of lung cancer-specific support groups, and um, many of the cancer support communities around the country offer them as well, and as well as you know, just incredible support to people with cancer and their loved ones. And Lung Cancer Alliance also helps find other support in, in the area. And for a lot of people, that might not be available. And so for people who need additional support or people who don't have access, we offer our Phone Buddy program, and that matches people with lung cancer over the phone for support and information. And we also have something called our Guides program, and that offers the same kind of support, peer-to-peer -peer support, for those whose loved one is the end of life, is at the end of life from lung cancer. Um, and boy, when I think about needs, um, I know that we get a lot of calls from people who are looking for financial assistance, as I know you do as well. Lung cancer is an expensive disease. Cancer Support Community offers great information on coping with the cost of cancer care. Um, and we both help people find the resources that are out there to help manage financially, really try to track um, which, you know, which foundations have funds for, co for copay assistance and all of that to try to save people um, having to call around and, and do that themselves. Mm -hmm. Thanks. And, and I would like to just uh, put a little plug in for the work around the cancer insurance checklist. And, you know, we... Absolutely. There, there was, as you know, a group of 19 cancer organizations that worked together to put together uh, a checklist so that patients would be able to use that to compare what their needs are relative to availability of healthcare coverage if they are uh, shopping insurance on the marketplaces. Although I would say that it's a tool that could be used 
for shopping any type of insurance. But what I wanted to just raise here is that if you go to cancerinsurancechecklist.org, there is also a list of resources available to you. And um, not just on the financial aspect or the uh, healthcare coverage aspect, but for uh, support as well. So I just wanted to quickly take that opportunity to remind people of that resource as well. It's cancerinsurancechecklist.org. So um, Maureen, talk a little bit about... uh, Long, longer-term issues that survivors of lung cancer typically face? Well, sure. And I, first of all, I'd like to thank you for asking that question, Linda, because by asking it, you know that there are long-term survivors of lung cancer. Um, we both know them. Um, and one of the problems is that the long-term effects in lung cancer haven't been studied enough, but we certainly know from our volunteers as well as from survivors of other cancers that, unfortunately, there, there are issues. There can be long-term side effects from treatment, most notably radiation and chemotherapy. Uh, some people who have had lung cancer surgery may have numbness around their scar for the rest of their lives. So there are definitely some physical um, responses to to being in lung cancer treatment. And, of course, there are emotional uh, as well. Um, Like most cancer survivors, there's always the fear of recurrence or um, a new cancer to contend with. And for many, the way they find um, helpful to cope is just knowing others are feeling the same way. And survivors can connect through online support communities, support groups, or peer-to-peer support programs to find out they're not alone and not the only um, people that are feeling that way. And we also see um, in this cancer with, with unfortunately, such a low survival rate, um, we do find survival guilt, survivor guilt. And many people who have survived lung cancer find giving back helpful, whether it's through volunteering to be a peer mentor, getting involved with advocacy, volunteering at their local hospital, or even starting a, a lung cancer support group. That can be really important to them to give back. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. As we uh, close this segment and this this show for today, is there Anything else that you would like to leave our listeners with? Anything we didn't cover or something you would like to remind them? Absolutely. Um, We really are in an extraordinary time in lung cancer. And we know that screening saves lives and much more research is being done. Innovative treatments are being approved faster than ever before. The disease is being caught earlier and people are living longer. And so I would say to all the people out there with lung cancer and their loved ones, please know that you're not alone. There's an entire community of people here who understand and want to help. Great words to close on. Thank you so much, Maureen Rigney, for being here with us today to talk about lung cancer and share the work of the Lung Cancer Alliance and a number of our partner organizations. As we've said before, this show has been sponsored by Beringer Ingelheim. To all of our listeners, thank you for joining us today for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am Linda House, filling in today for Kim Tebaldo, so she'll be back with you next week. If you have an idea for an episode of Frankly Speaking About Cancer, we invite all of our listeners to share any topics with us. You can submit your idea to news, N-E-W-S, news at cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and over-the-phone support. If you or someone you know is faced with a cancer diagnosis, as Maureen just said, you do not have to do it alone. For more information about our programs, visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org, where you can find a location near you or a host of information um, on our website. You are also more than welcome to call our helpline at 888-793-9355 to speak with a licensed mental health professional Monday through Friday from 9 in the morning to 8 in the evening Eastern Time. Until next time... 
Be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america health and wellness channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericahealth.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management